Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Diego Perez, known more commonly as Young Pueblo, for the Real Change podcast series. Diego is a meditator, writer, and speaker who is widely known on Instagram and various social media networks through his pen name, Young Pueblo. Online, he reaches hundreds of thousands of people every month through his written works that focus on the reality of self-healing, the movement from self-love to unconditional love, and the wisdom that comes when we truly work on knowing ourselves. His first book, Inward, was self-published and quickly became a bestseller on Amazon. A revised and expanded edition of Inward has recently been published and is now available in bookstores around the world. Diego's practice of Vipassana meditation, as taught by Essen Goenka, has given him a deeper understanding of liberation that inspires his writing. I'm so happy to welcome you to the Meta Hour, Diego. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's a real honor to be sharing this moment with you right now. Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure to meet you virtually for this conversation. I've been seeing uh, your posts and your poetry on social media for a while and saw the interview that Dan Harris did for Nightline. And I'm so really happy to speak with you today about love and activism and practice and and share your work with everyone who's listening. So the this conversation is part of a series I'm doing for the release of my book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. And the book is an exploration of the role that meditation and spirituality can have in changing the world. And I've looked to veteran activists and social change agents in a variety of fields to understand Lots of the different ways that folks engage in an active life, trying to make a difference, whether the changes they seek are working towards activism or creativity or family or systems change or or beyond. So uh, to begin with, can you tell us about how you came actually to be a meditator since Goenka was my first teacher back in 1971? It, you know, it meant a lot to me to see that, that you were, uh, were a student of his. Yeah, I um so it really began back um when I was about like 22, 23 years old. I was really lost. Um had a ton of very unhealthy habits. I was using a lot of drugs at the time and I sort of just hit this breaking point where um my body really could not keep going anymore. Um I think I had this one particular episode where I where I really felt like I was having a maybe like a mild form of a heart attack. And um, I felt like my life was coming to an end. But when I got back up and I literally, you know, felt like I was like begging and willing um, for my life to continue, um, I decided to make some pretty, pretty strong determinations and just stop all the serious drug abuse and um, start like getting to know myself. And that was just on the intellectual level. You know, I hadn't started meditating yet at all. Um, But for about a year, um, I was practicing radical honesty with myself and just trying to see why I was avoiding my emotions, why I had become so addicted to to pleasure in general. And um, and I started just, you know, like eating better and working out and just doing the things that my body was begging me to do. Um, and after a while, I had heard uh, from a friend who was traveling through India. He had sat one of the courses um, in one of the centers there. And after he had had his um, his experience with the course, he wrote an email to um, myself and a few other friends. And all he could talk about in that email was love, compassion, and goodwill. And to <laughs> me, it was so shocking, you know, such so, like, he's like one of my best friends and this, you know, I've known him for years at that point and um, had never heard him utter these words. So all I knew was something happened to him and whatever happened to him, I need some of that too. So um, I ended up signing up for a course. And I, it was the summer of 2012 where I did my first course um, up in um, Washington State. There was a center there. And 
and it was an incredible experience. I, you know, I've been hearing about the Buddha my whole life, right? The Buddha is a very popular character in human history. And, um, but I've never quite resonated with even the teaching or, you know, wasn't particularly interested in meditation, but there's something about, um, hearing the word Vipassana and also like encountering Goenka's exposition of the Dhamma just mm-hmm. hit so hard. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, in those first 10 days, honestly, I felt like I learned more in those 10 days than I did in four years of college. Um, at the end, I felt so much lighter, so much freer. Um, and it, it was just the, the very, very tip of the iceberg, right? Like I didn't understand the practice. I didn't really understand how purification of the mind worked. But um, I kept going back. I kept doing more courses. And uh, I started realizing that at a very deep fundamental level, I was actually healing myself and that real healing was possible. And that helped me not only connect to this creativity that was bubbling up from inside of me, but also with um, essentially what I wanted to do with my life. Um, And that just basically opened up a whole new world of writing and trying to just help people see themselves a little more clearly so that they can make those better decisions that'll help them, you know, create a better world. Mm -hmm. I can remember my first course too, and it was kind of like that, you know, it was like, uh, I was in India, it was actually January 1971, and uh, it was amazing, you know, just like the first night even, I just thought, there's truth here. And whatever hardships I had, you know, actually practicing or uh, within myself, whatever, you know, uncertainties I had, it was never about the process and it was never about the teachings from then on. And people often ask me about a struggle with doubt or, you know, and some I've had doubts about myself or about, you know, which practice to do or different things, but I've never once turned back from that moment of knowing, you know, like there's truth here. It's so real too. And it's, and it's interesting because there are so many different lineages out there and I, you know, different things work for people depending on their conditioning and mm-hmm. what their mm-hmm. really interacts with. And, but there was something about like, you know, I don't know, like, I, you know, I don't, I only really have memories from this life. I don't know if past lives are real or not. Um, I have a feeling that they probably are, but mm-hmm. encountering Goenka, I was just like, wow, this is for me. And then as I kept growing in the practice, I was like, okay, I don't really feel the sense or the need to explore other practices because mm-hmm. I'm getting so much from this right now. And, um, I decided to just stay put. And I really listened to this, um, you know, one piece of advice that he gives at the end of the course where he's like, you know, whatever you end up doing, just like whatever lineage or whatever practice you end up choosing, just make sure that you master it, get good at it and, mm-hmm. um, you know, deepen yourself in it. And I took that to heart. And, um, to this day, you know, I love the idea of just continuously being a student so that I can, um, keep growing. Mm. That's wonderful. Um, so you are an artist and an activist. <laughs> and, uh, one of the things that, kind of helped me in in my working on the book real change was actually opening up my sense of what an activist was and the you know the definitions of what social action were and part of that was based on this conversation with bell hooks where she was um you know sort of recommending that i think in a broader way <laughs> to put it nicely and uh, there there was some um obvious association that so many of us have, you know, that if you're an activist, it means you're marching and you're protesting uh, in total. That's, that's the realm of activism. And, and uh, in my conversation with Bell, it sort of came down to what about art? You know, if you're talking about yeah. things that dissolve our boundaries and um, make us look at life differently and be willing to be a different person, what about art? So I wonder if you could talk something about that relationship. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because I sometimes feel this tension within myself because in the, I would say, you know, before I got into my period of drug abuse, I really did a lot of my learning through organizing. Like I was a 
I was a youth organizer. So it was basically teenagers teaching other teenagers how to organize themselves so that they can change their schools or their city. And this was back in Boston where I was growing up at the time. And I got so much from seeing that you can actually empower each other and make material changes happen. You know, that people with a lot of power, if you put the proper amount of pressure on them, will actually give you what you want. Mm-hmm. And like learning that skill of organizing, um, just it, it radically changed my life. But I didn't have any inner tools to help me really deal with myself. So that's how I kind of ended up getting lost along the way. So now, you know, I definitely feel that with my writing, like the purpose, like the the whole idea of Young Pueblo, like I created it so that um, as a piece of social commentary, so that people can understand that uh, humanity as a whole, we're very young. Like if you take all of us as a whole, we're, you know, we can't do these simple things like, clean up after ourselves, tell the truth, to be kind to one another, to not hit each other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these, these simple things that we're taught as children. Um, But I really believe that through this century, you know, we have so many daunting challenges in front of us that it's going to be this massive period of growth. And a lot of that is going to not only come from collective work, you know, because the the actual piece of organizing is so critical and important. I think when people move together in mass movements, that really changes history. But what's going to make that work even stronger is the individual work that we do to like find our own healing tools to make progress in our development of our personal happiness of letting go of all the, you know, the past wounds or the heaviness that we're carrying and just figure out a way to, you know, allow more clarity and creativity and joy to really emerge from our minds. But um, so I've, in some ways, I'd feel like a, like a sort of an, an activist in the past, but right now I'm just focusing on writing, but I definitely see how it's a critical component because we have to be able to imagine, imagine things differently and imagine in bigger ways if we're going to actually make tangible material change. Um, so it's interesting shifting my roles, you know, as a, as an active organizer to now being like a, you know, just a, a full-time writer and trying to help people imagine that they can actually heal themselves and that they can then take that healing to better communicate with each other and love each other better. That's so great. I can remember uh, many years ago going to the Soviet Union to teach and it was at first, it was still the Soviet Union. We we kept going, uh, Joseph Goldstein and I, after it was Russia, you know. But uh, when it was the Soviet Union, we would watch people um, getting married and, and just this urge toward touching the sacred somewhere. So a very common place to go would be like a poet's grave mm. and uh, to pay respect there and... Um, I thought, wow, you know, like what an amazing thing, you know, a world where the sacred was not really honored in a way, you know, in in terms of the collective culture um, and the the government edicts, you know, but, but there was something in people and where did they go? They went to poets' graves and uh, which were really like sacred sites. And it's so interesting because one thing that I keep observing over and over is that when the mind is so dense with conditioning, right? And the conditioning is only, it keeps multiplying and you keep reacting and adding to that density. Um, When you reverse that process and you actually start pulling back all those layers and unbinding all of these knots in the mind, what you get is such a natural emergence of creativity that just kind of comes out of nowhere and doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be an artist, but there's a new creativity that you can use to look at old problems in your life and come up with new solutions. And mm-hmm. I love that the, you're connecting the sacred to the creative because in, there are moments when, and I've heard this from so many writers, like musicians, poets, writers, but like some of the best things come when you produce them very quickly and you don't know where they're coming from, but they're just coming through you. And I noticed that process happening in myself sometimes, especially in the beginning when I started writing, because I never considered myself a writer. I, I honestly thought I was going to be um, a banker because, you know, I grew up <laughs> Yeah, I grew yeah. up before that I was like, I got to make money for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I started meditating after I did, I think that was after the third 
course, like I started writing real poems and I was like, where is this coming from? And it was just because my mind was finally getting cleaned up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, it, I think that's the best kind of writing, actually. I wrote this book um, 18 years ago. It came out called Faith. Yeah. Uh, Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience is a subtitle. And it's really about my faith journey. And it was very hard for me to write, you know, both because of reliving a lot of my childhood and, and uh, in the conversation with my freelance editor, she said, um, uh, you, you know, we were talking about doubt. And I said that from the Buddhist perspective, the right kind of doubt is not the enemy of faith at all. It actually, you know, when you're sincere and you're questioning and you're really investigating and you want to know the truth for yourself, that actually enhances faith. So she said to me, well, what's the opposite of faith then? And I said, well, despair. And then she said to me, well, you're going to have to tell a despair story, you know? And I said, I don't want to really, you know, like, <laughs> let's not go there, you know? Like, but of course I did. Um, yeah, but it was a very difficult process for me and it took a long time to write the book and I'm really, really happy I did. But somewhere in there, I went, I was talking to Susan Griffin, who's a, um, uh, writer and uh, several other people were, were kind of helping me, you know, when I would feel really blocked. And the main advice was um, stop thinking of yourself as the person writing this book and think of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book. Wow. Just like step out of the way. And it was really good. And then somebody said to me, you know, many people would think you write a book about a topic like that because you know everything about it and you want to impart your expertise, but more likely you're writing a book about a topic like that because you're trying to explore it. And which of course was completely true. So That's, once I stepped out of the way, it was like a very different story. I honestly am, I'm relating so much to that because I'm actually working on another book now and I'm beginning it by telling my story and it's literally mm-hmm. the story of despair <laughs> and yeah. and writing trying to like get through that mud is so tough but um i'm in the midst of it so working through it it just feels like um like i'm getting so much out of it but at the same time it's like it's almost like i have to just send meta to my past self because yeah. i there's nothing i can do about that right i can't change that past yeah. but i can benefit from those mistakes today for mm-hmm. sure and the thing is, I mean, it's kind of a funny thing to say, but a lot of other people will benefit from them. I mm. think, you know, that's the thing that people, so many people come up to me and say, uh, you know, it really meant a lot to me that you told that story, you know, or my life was like yours or, you know, something like that. And and so it's, it's I think it's the honesty of it that actually is the most attractive feature and there's something magical about the process it's so weird it's like I was writing that book and I was writing about meeting Goenka my first course in uh, India in 1971 I got a call from somebody in Massachusetts saying well Goenka's coming to town he wants to see you I hadn't seen him in like 20 years or something mm-hmm. you know and and it was like weird you know just like the inner process I was going through began to connect with outer events <laughs> I love that. Um, you know, this is, this might be a little off topic, but um, one of the things that really, I think, profoundly affected my practice and made things so much clearer to the value of being a Dhamma practitioner as a householder was reading um, that little book about Deepama's life. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I know you have such a profound connection with her, but it just, yeah. um, reading how, like, homely the practice can be and how simple it could be in your own home how much progress you can make in your own home, um, I think really just like help ignite a new fire in, in my own process. Cause I, I meditate two hours a day, like an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And sometimes, you know, like the, the big enemy of that is like allowing that to become mechanical as mm-hmm. a, like a real practice of presence. Um, but I, yeah, it just awoke a whole new light in, um, in my own practice. I'm really grateful to her. That's great. Well, I am really grateful to her, too. And she was um, one of my uh, really important teachers, and she was a householder. She, um, for anybody not familiar with her story, you know, she was uh, 
put into an arranged marriage when she was, I think, 12 years old. And uh, then she and her husband fell deeply in love. And uh, it was many, many years. It was something like 18 years before they had any children. And then they had three children and two of them died. And and then uh, she and her husband and, and daughter, Deepa, Deepa was like a nickname, Deepa's mother, uh, were living in Burma because her husband was in the civil service there. And um, he wasn't feeling well one day. And by that evening, he had died. And so she was completely overcome with grief and developed a heart condition and went to bed. She couldn't get out of bed. And the doctor came, and it being Burma, he said, uh, you're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you do something about your mind. You should learn how to meditate. And so she got up, she got out of bed, and she went to the meditation center and said she was so weak when she got there, she couldn't walk up the stairs to get to where the meditation room was, so she crawled. And when she emerged, she um, had somehow metabolized all of that suffering into compassion. It was just uh, the greatest source of her her being, you know, and I, I always, somebody wrote a book about her, which is what Diego is referring to. And I always thought it would be a tough sell to create that book in a way, because so many teachers can say something. It's just like this one pithy line and it just changes your life. And she was not like that. It was all energetic. It was all in her heartfulness, her love, being in her presence. And I thought it's going to be the same story. Like, I felt miserable. I spent some time with her. I felt really good. You know? <laughs> and I thought, That's not going to make a great book. Uh, but she was really extraordinary. And she, she uh, is the person who told me to teach. So she's actually responsible for my entire oh, life. Really? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Cause um, it's interesting. Cause I think with my generation, um, the book has become pretty popular. <laughs> That's really good. A lot of people reading about it. And a lot of us had, had have had this similar experience where we're reading the book and it's like, I don't know this person. I haven't met them, but I can feel them. Like I, oh, can, okay. <laughs> I, can, I can feel her. And I, I love what you said about metabolizing all of that into compassion. Mm-hmm. I have a similar sort of experience where just like spending so much time observing my own ignorance has just switched my life in a way where I can have compassion for the people around me. Like, obviously, you know, I have so much work to do on my compassion um, and the strength of it, but that connection, and I think that that's what really connects to activism at large is like when you can understand the mistakes that you've made and when you can really start expanding your idea of the fact that all human beings are so imperfect. So every single one of us, either directly or indirectly, intentionally or unintentionally have absolutely harmed someone mm-hmm. and from if you use that as your starting point then you can start really embracing ideas of you know transformative justice and reparative justice and moving outside of the more like stringent stringent carceral mentalities that our society really wants us to internalize because mm-hmm. um, if we you know especially with like the the rise of Black Lives Matters again and just understanding how like prisons are affecting people and how they're they're just not improving society, right? Like I saw I saw yeah. the other day that was talking about how if arresting people would make a place safe, then the United States would be the most safe place in the world. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. true at all. But um and I think that's one one of the beautiful things about creatives is that it's like pushing that work of imagination again. Like how can we imagine a different world? And even like reading the work of like Ursula K. Le Guin, Mm -hmm. um, seeing how much she was able to imagine different realities. And even, have you read the book, The Dispossessed? No. It's a beautiful one. It's a tiny, it's a tiny, it's a book where Mm -hmm. she imagines a sort of juxtaposition of a capitalist world versus an anarchist world. And Mm -hmm. there's a little, where in the anarchist, anarchist world, they had balanced out society so well that no one had had the experience of going to jail. And these children had heard about the idea of imprisoning someone and they did it. They, one of them sort of volunteered and he was like, okay, I'll be imprisoned. And they, they put this kid in one room and locked him in there for a whole day. And all of them 
were so horrified by the experience that they actually never talked about it again in their lives. Mm. Um, they did that to their fellow friend and they all sort of just like moved forward from that. But, you know, imagining a world without prisons, like that's yeah. the type of um, compassion, like the type of essentially scaling up of compassion that we need to aim for, even though that might sound really hard and, and almost even ludicrous to some people. But, you know, I mean, we like the world was so much worse 300 years ago. Yeah. So we absolutely can aim higher and do better. I mean, it's really, if you've ever gone into a prison, um, you know, to teach, for example, it's, it's so clear that it's not a place necessarily for um, repair of any kind, you know? Right. And it's, it's so arbitrary. You know, I've gone just a few times to teach, um, usually with a program that's already in existence and uh, just the arbitrariness of it, you know, like a hundred people were told they could come to my class and only 30 on the day were allowed to come, you know, for no reason or, um, and there seem to be built in the most inconvenient places for families or right. friends to visit, you know, like a billion miles from anywhere. And, um, you know, I had this one experience where I went with a friend in uh, Wisconsin to God knows where to teach in this prison. And uh, it was a men's prison. It seemed to be fairly short-term sentences. And, um the men were great. And, uh, and then we stayed on to do a session for the staff. Um, and the person who uh, we had come with had, had gotten a ride with someone else. And, you know, you have to leave all your stuff in these lockers. And, and they had ended up leaving with all the money, basically, that we had uh, between the three of us. And so all I had was like a $10 bill tucked into my iPhone case, which was in the locker. So when we left, we needed gas because we were in the middle of nowhere. So we spent $10 on the gas. We had had lunch there and, and there were literally bugs in the food. So we didn't really eat. And we were both so hungry, uh, my friend and I, and, and we were scrambling around the floor of the car for like coins to see if we could find enough money, you know, for anything. It was like being really poor. And uh, we managed to like buy a bag of pretzels and have a cup, one cup of coffee as well as the gas. And I thought, well, this is like a life for a lot of people. You know, this yeah. is how some people live. And here we are, we get to visit it, you know, for one, one day. And it's not very pleasant. No. And it's, it's such an intense experience. Like I've, um, it's interesting because when I, I know that so many people are doing work specifically on their trauma right now. And it's become a yeah. very popular topic of introspection, which is fantastic. And when I think back to my own life, um, honestly, the most trauma, traumatizing thing by far has been poverty itself. Um, mm -hmm. Like growing up in the United States, like, I'm, you know, my family, we immigrated here um, from Ecuador. I was about four years old and living here um, without money, like, you know, just like struggling so much. My, my mother cleaned houses and my dad worked in a supermarket and we lived, you know, there was, um, it was my brother and my sister and myself and my mom and my dad and the five of us lived in a two bedroom apartment, you know, for years. And we, and we lived the total, total opposite of luxury, but even so we still couldn't make ends meet. And it was still so difficult to like, you know, we're talking seriously from check to check to check, building up so much debt along the way, um, just to survive. And that experience, you know, I saw how much stress it put on my parents. Mm -hmm. And in return, you know, with uh, me and my siblings, we absolutely felt that. And my parents were great people. You know, they, they, even in their poverty, they were still, they still found ways to give and to still, you know, they lived very virtuously. Um, but it was um, just such a trying experience. And even like having, you know, I had a dear cousin of mine who, um, he was like, he was really the one who was sort of introducing us to the, to the United States, but he ended up going to prison, um, twice and seeing that process that I, think I was about nine years old when he went to prison, um, having like my role model go away and having to visit him in prison too, um, mm -hmm. and him letters. 
But just thinking about that and seeing how dehumanizing of a process that was, and even when we would go to visit him, you know, we'd have to like go through these metal detectors, wait an obscene amount of time and like constantly be looked at funny by police. And um, it just felt so irregular, you know, mm-hmm. things like I, in, in my childhood, looking back, like so many things fell out of balance um, that now, you know, when I write and I think about like the, the term that keeps coming up over and over is structural compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Like how can we literally scale up the compassion that we can experience from individual to individual into a structural level where there's actually compassion happening between groups, between nations, between companies, um, so that we can see this, you know, actual change in our material realities. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing. That's, that's beautiful. I mean, some of it, I think, uh, may lie in just a kind of education, you know, like, because yeah. something I read about in Real Change was also a, um, it's not really a struggle, but a challenge that I've faced, you know, myself in trying to understand life and and the effects of meditation and the benefits of meditation was was seeing that I really do believe that that meditation practice of of several kinds, you know, it doesn't have to be specifically loving kindness practice, you know, that it will transform someone's heart and that uh, so many people have said that to me, you know, like I, I gave this person on the street a dollar and I looked at them for the very first time and realized that was a human being. Or I listened or, you know, in, in times like this, in a world where uh, kind of the painful and almost tragic side of interconnection is also apparent, you know, we, we uh, realize that what happens over there, wherever over there is, doesn't stop over there, you know, it comes over oh, here. What yeah. we do it really matters. And, you know, there are just ways in which I think people are having, uh, through their practice or through life experience, having uh, a whole other understanding. But people uh, don't necessarily have the kind of, almost analytical training to think, well, what is the systemic root of this? You know, like, why is this guy on the street asking for money? You know, like, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. No, I love that. Um, I think one of the things that humans struggle with is complexity, right? I think it's it's hard to really, like, in your mind encapsulate all of the different factors and all of the different movements and like multiplicity of cause and effect that's happening mm-hmm, so rapidly mm-hmm. throughout the world. Um, but one of the, I think one of the things that made it so, so I was in New York city during the pandemic. I was there from, um, you know, I, I lived there um, up until a little while ago and, but specifically from, from March to I think about June, you know, we didn't leave New York city at all essentially. And um, my wife and I, we got to really, experience the slow sort of intensity of the pandemic in New York City where we, you know, we, 23,000 people ended up dying very yeah. quickly. It was, in a, I would say, in like a two to three month period. Um, and that's so many times more than what, you know, the people that passed away in 9-11. Yeah. So for a city, that that hit was so centralized, but it made so many things clear. You know, one one of the biggest topics was the healthcare inequality that was happening in the city where so many black and brown people were getting worse healthcare and worse treatment in hospitals and and were dying at bigger numbers, like in community hospitals. And and it it made the interconnectedness so clear and in in a way where you knew, like, if the people in your community are not healthy, then your chances of being unhealthy also rise. So why is it so difficult for everyone in the city to have at least and some sort of equal access to great health care so that because if they're healthy then we're going to be healthy as well right that especially in regards to a virus and a pandemic like if if people are better taken care of then everyone's likelihood of surviving through this is going to increase and everything felt so interconnected in that moment that um I hope it becomes a, a lasting experience because that's one of the things that we need to sort of 
in, include in our idea of human rights that everyone should have access to fantastic healthcare, you know, no mm-hmm. matter the income level. But um, I wanted to touch on to what you said about the heart, because I remember before I started meditating, like my heart felt so rough, like it felt so rough and full. And it wasn't until, you know, I wasn't like a particularly bad person, but I, I you know, I, my interactions always felt like, um, like I could, I could just be so much gentler. And it wasn't until I, meditation taught me how to deal with myself gently that I was then able to bring that gentleness into my um, like everyday like affairs with my family, with my, you know, with my wife, with my friends. Um, and, and in a big way, I think meditating just helped me just integrate this idea of gentleness because you, you don't know what people are going through. You don't know what they you know, what they, what's happened to them or why they could be mean to you. But if you're able to maintain some degree of equanimity and some degree of loving kindness, like towards them, then at the very least, it'll protect your inner peace. That's so great. And I want to talk a little bit about, um, loving kindness toward oneself, you know, uh, and that gentleness toward oneself. There's this beautiful poem from your book inward, uh, where you say, I can only give to you what I have already given to myself. I can only understand the world as much as I understand myself. And that correlation between inner and outer transformation comes through so much of your work. When you heal yourself, you heal the world. So I wonder if you can speak more to that. It's interesting because it's such a simple idea. And it's also an idea that's existed since time immemorial, right? Like human beings have understood for a long time since the Buddhist teaching. Um, and, and I think probably before then and after, like there's something bad that happens to you when you do bad things to other people. So the reverse of that is that when you're, when you're doing good things to other, you actually are serving yourself as well. But um, realizing how much my own inner difficulties, my own ignorance, my limited perspective of myself and how much and what was actually happening inside of me that really dominated my worldview so that when I would take that lens and look around the world and try to understand the world, I noticed that I was actually able to interact with and embrace and just understand that complexity of the world a little bit better when I started interacting and embracing and and appreciating my own inner complexity. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the two things just really go hand in hand, you know, when you're able to, is connect the fact that, you know, I really see unconditional love as a synonym with mental clarity. Like if if you're able to have a real loving view of the world and of yourself, then that means you've elevated your mind to a new type of mental clarity that can help you just see things much more clearly. Um, Because in some ways, right, like like as you're meditating, when you're developing, developing a sense of objective observation, and equanimity, like meta and equanimity quickly become one and you're able to just see things so much more clearly, but clarity, what, what is that other than love? Wow. You know, you're making me think of several things at once, you know, uh, one is this Tibetan practice where if you're angry at somebody or they're yelling at you, you know, uh, and you're, you're feeling angry in response, you sort of, break it down and like, are you angry at their mouth, you know, for yelling? Are you angry at their vocal cords? Are you angry at their anger? Are you angry at, you know? <laughs> I love that. You just kind of, when you said mental clarity, that's what I thought of. It was just sort of like, well, what are we reacting to? Again, it's like taking a step back and being willing to, if not see, then sense there are causes and conditions, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that this person is is uh, subject to, they're overwhelmed by in a way, and that you know it's very difficult because of course when people hear the word love or compassion in the conventional way, they don't think about strength, you know, <laughs> and, right. and, act, and they think oh that means you're going to be you know you're going to smile stupidly at this person who's yelling at you and you're just going to take it, and uh, which of course it doesn't mean at all. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a visual that I carry in my mind um, where I try to see humanity as a web and the hurt that we sort of pass along to each other, you know, it comes from 
such a long time ago. Because if you think about your own family lineage and what's been happening, it's like there's this hurt that's being passed down from the past to the present into the future. But the more that individuals are able to equip themselves with tools that help them process their hurt in healthy ways and actually heal what's happening inside of them, then that's going to give them a greater degree of resilience so that in the future, when someone comes and wants to like, you know, either like give you some sort of trouble, you're better equipped to not only be strong in those moments and know how to actively heal yourself if you so need to, but that helps you stop the passing on of hurt into the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the key things that's so special about this time that we live in today. Because right, there have always been groups of people who've wanted to change the world for the better. But I think this is one of the first times in human history where you know the world has become completely globalized. We have so much great wisdom from the East and from the West, um, from indigenous people, from, from everywhere. Um, as people want to heal themselves. And this has been carried forward um, in our different traditions and cultures. But now we have people generally have access to almost everything. So, and we can definitely go like a long ways in regards to accessibility of different practices and different therapies. Um, things can obviously be more affordable, but the practices are there. And there's a lot more of them that are, you know, that are essentially free in a lot of ways. Um, but because we have these practices, because we have these healing tools, that's going to make all of our collective movements so much stronger. Because when we look back at history, there have been so many people who wanted to make the world into a better place, but then they end up gaining some power and they end up very quickly reproducing the, the difficulties and the ills that they were trying to essentially get rid of. Um, but if we're able to profoundly heal ourselves, then that's just going to make our world, our, our work not only more creative, but just so much more effective and hopefully long-lasting. I really think that it's in the healing of the individual that we're going to be able to create a collective and lasting peace. That's a beautiful vision. And I think I agree. You know, I think it's uh, it's a different time. And one thing I actually wanted to say reading your tweets a lot, which I, cause I'm on Twitter so much. Um, I noticed that like, it was so interesting to me, like in the midst of this pandemic and crisis and economic crisis and, you know, electoral politics and despair, you're writing a lot about relationships, which I thought was very interesting. <laughs> you know, like, it's very immediate. It's like, okay, right here, what are we actually struggling with today? Yeah, you know, it's very um it's very intentional because so the first book that I wrote inward is very much so about the individual. It's about you and yourself and how there's the possibility of healing, how you can make a big change happen in your life. But then I started thinking a lot about the next level up from there and that's our friendships and our and our intimate relationships. And I really think that these are the building blocks of society. If we can't figure out, like if you and I cannot figure out how to treat each other well and how to communicate properly and how to make sure that you're supported and I'm supported and that if we're committed to each other, we can live up to these commitments in a healthy way, then of course we're not going to be able to have a peaceful world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because the collective is just as important. Like there's absolutely a need for collective healing, for collective movement. And I'm not trying to say that individual healing or anything like that is more important. Not at all. These things have to work together. Um, they make each other stronger. They make each other possible. Um, so if collective healing and individual individual healing can go hand in hand, um, it's just going to make just uh, it's definitely going to make for a brighter future. But I try to w place myself in the area of this individual healing, because that's just where I'm at in my life. Like I'm not actively organizing right now with a group of people. If I were, then I would be writing about that. Um, but right now I'm just thinking about like, what's making my relationships work? Like what could I improve? Like what actually um, are sort of universal traits that could produce much more um, loving interactions between people. But um, you know, it's it, the other thing that I try to avoid too, is that our, system and, and the way the media works, it makes us so reactive 
Because if you think about it, like the world is so vast. So there's always going to be difficult, tough things happening all throughout the world. And you, we should do our best to have compassion to what's happening and know, um, you know, generally know what's happening in the world and inform ourselves properly. But at the same time, like you don't want to be emotionally dominated by the changing movements of the world. Like you want to, you know, have a certain degree of inner peace because if you're able to have some sort of internal stability, then that's going to make the moment when you need to produce some hard action to stand up, like let's say for black lives or for, you know, for the so many different oppressed people that are out there. um, It's going to make your standing up just so much more powerful in a way. So like I try to practice that on my own and just, you know, this is what I want to write about. And of course I'm trying to support all the different things that are happening. And I'm, I definitely may, you know, keep myself informed, but, um, I also just don't want to be reactive and I don't want the media to tell me how to feel. Mm. It's so wonderful talking to you. I feel like we're, we, you know, like, um, you started out as an organizer and an activist and became a meditator and I became a meditator and, and, uh, have you know explored the world of activism like it's like we came from different directions you know yeah yeah in this place because listening to you i thought gee i wish you'd written my last book you know actually that would have been a great thing to say <laughs> like <laughs> uh, <laughs> what are you I, working on now can you say i know you just had a writing deadline yeah yeah i'm um so I'm working, so I just actually finished my second book. Um, I still have to put it through the editing process and it's going to be, um, similar to the first one. It's a bunch of short pieces, um, um, some longer pieces of prose, and it's going to be again, focused on personal transformation and on, um, on relationships. So it's going to, it's going to be a good mixture of both, which is the big difference from the first one where it was just focused on the individual. And, um, and I'm also working on a third one, um, that's on a very similar theme, you know, to, to real change where I'm just trying to do my exploration of like how we can connect, um, individual healing and have that support, um, a new structural compassion. That's fantastic. And I like the term structural compassion. I'm going to have to use it and give you all credit. So, oh yeah, I've been doing some research because, um, and I've seen little bits, you know, that I can't quite trace it back to. No one has like profoundly written on it, you know. It's been said in different ways in different essays, and it's cool um, seeing that this idea is like bubbling up. But I, it's it's a term for all of us, so I hope everybody starts like thinking in that in that in that manner. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really it's great to to finally kind of meet you, take one step closer to meeting you. Um, and since we're in the same Commonwealth, uh, someday maybe we'll actually. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I think we have so much more to talk about. It would be great. I'm wondering if to close our conversation, you could lead us in some kind of reflection. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I think about what's really important, there's a few things that stand out. And something that I'm always trying to drive home is the fact that there is a practice out there for you, especially if you haven't picked up any particular meditation or you don't have a therapist and you're sort of getting into this world and accepting and embracing this idea of personal healing that you can actually heal yourself. Well, then know that it doesn't just have to be a solitary intellectual process. There's going to be some type of modality out there for you that will help be able to help you connect with your body, connect with, connect with your subconscious where most of, most of your patterns lie and affect you. Um, to be able to get in there, I think one of the best ways is to just find a tool that meets you where you're at. And there are so many tools out there like, um, Sharon and I are both really serious meditators, but even outside of meditation, right? There's such a a wide variety of different types of meditation, but outside of them, you know, there's so many different healing modalities that have existed for a long time that have have had have brought people so many benefits. Um, and even beyond that, there's effective forms of Western therapy that have been giving people real results. So it's really about getting outside of your comfort zone, 
and finding something that's challenging, but at the same time is not overwhelming, right? We all have very different conditioning. We all have very different emotional histories. So finding a tool that meets us where we're at, something that really connects with our intuition, something that we feel is giving us real results, I think that's one of the most important things a human being alive today can do, not just for themselves and their own happiness and well-being, but so that you can ensure that in the future, you'll be able to treat people better. You'll be able to um, stop yourself from unintentionally causing harm and you know, just live that better life that you know you can and hopefully in turn support the building of a better world. Um, outside of finding a practice, I think allowing yourself to really understand that this work is hard and just embrace that fact. Like it's not easy to start building new habits that are going to support your happiness. Um, I think a lot of people sort of hit these walls when they don't get the immense results that they immediately crave. But it comes with time. If you keep trying, you keep putting in energy and you keep um, you know, trying to develop some sense of consistency in your practice, then eventually you're going to see some fantastic, immense results and a real, a true great transformation will take place. But it's okay for it to be hard. You know, It doesn't have to be easy. Um, but human beings, like all of our history is us accomplishing great things on the individual level, on the collective level. So when you think about your own healing, understand that this is a huge, beautiful, intense journey. But if you keep putting your energy into it and you walk into it with a strong determination, then you are going to have some amazing, powerful and long lasting results. Well, thank you. That's really like a blessing, you know, so it's very good and very true. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really, it's been so wonderful to take that step closer to to meeting you. Uh, And I feel like we have met and many people have got to meet you today. So it's it's great. Um, To learn more about Diego's work, you can visit www.youngpueblo, that's Y-U-N-G-P-U-E-B-L-O.com. And a big thank you to all of you who are listening. This has been the Real Change series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.